0: song for us. And so my favorite line is the one where you were searching. I was searching until you found me. Yeah. So we praise God for his grace. Well, I'm going to pray this morning and I want you to pray along with you as I pray. Pray along with me as I pray. Lord God, we just gave to you our offerings and we want to pray about that because as your scripture teaches us so clearly in Deuteronomy 8, that you are the one that has given us the power to produce wealth. It doesn't come from us and our ingenuity, our creativity. Those are all just the means that you use. And it's our joy to give a portion back to you, our most, one of our most tangible acts of worship this morning. And we ask that you would be pleased with what we bring to you and use it for your glory. We also want to pray this morning for the peace of Ukraine. We're so saddened by all the news that we hear. We pray, Lord God, that we pray for your church, especially. We ask that we would see your glory, that you would glorify yourself in the midst of it by drawing people to yourself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that this is our hope and our eternity, and we ask that you would open people's eyes to see this. We pray for your peace to be a source of strength. We pray for the many missionaries serving there. We pray for the many Ukrainian believers that have been serving you faithfully in your church, that you would give them a deep and an abiding peace, that you would give them opportunities to share about this and to trust you, We pray for your protection, physical protection, but also spiritual protection, and that people would honestly be seeking truth. We ask that you would comfort, comfort those that have already suffered so much loss by the fact that they have an ultimate hope in you. We ask, of course, for your mercy, that you would intervention, that you would grant wisdom to world leaders as they think and strategize and plan we pray that you would guide them in all of these things. And we have a special interest to lift up to you this morning, and those are our national partners, the Trots family. We pray for them. We pray for their safety. We pray for their ministry, that you would give them courage in the midst of the situation that they're in, that you would meet their needs, that you would supply them with what they need to meet other people's needs in your name, and that the gospel would go forth. And as they've requested from us this morning, we pray as they want us to pray, and that is we pray for the church to remain calm and to trust the gospel, to trust you, Lord Jesus. We pray as they've requested that you would have mercy and that you would prevent much bloodshed. We also pray this morning because we remember Jesus, your cross and resurrection, that you are our eternal hope and joy, joy even now. We read, for example, in the scriptures, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our salvation is all of grace only by grace, no self-effort. Our salvation is all of Christ and only by Christ. There's no other Savior. It's all of faith and only through faith, not by the accumulation of religious works. And we come as a people who has no boast but in you, Lord Jesus. We have no boasting as Christians. Salvation is a gift that you gave to us. We were created and then recreated in Christ and given spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that you would make Ephesians 2 8, 2 10 a reality in our life, that we would walk in what you put before us with purpose, that we would use the gifts that you've given us to fulfill your glory and to point people to you in all the mysteries. We ask that you would guide us now and teach us from your scripture. I ask, Lord God, that if there are those here today that have hard hearts, that you would break them and soften them. We pray also, Lord, that you would strengthen those of us who are weak in our faith and that we would gain all of this because we are in your scripture this morning, your word. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake, amen. So we're continuing in our study in Luke chapter 9, so you can turn to that or just, I printed it for you in your worship folder. But you know, Jesus gave a lot of different gospel invitations on different occasions. But uh, if you want to call them that, but you know, most of his gospel invitations that are recorded for us are pretty tough ones, pretty tough ones, tough ones for people for in our cultural climate today to hear as well. But then again, they weren't really ever that easy for anyone to hear and accept. And the one we read about today is perhaps the most challenging of all because Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me. And it assumes he assumes that many people do want to come after him. Many people claim that, and they said so. Well, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, this means to stop serving yourself being self-oriented, to consciously make self-sacrificing decisions on a daily basis, and of course, most basically means to give up on ourselves, to try to save ourselves, but by putting our faith completely in Jesus Christ and His cross, and that's just the beginning of our walk with Him. It also means being willing to suffer and to die in imitation and obedience to Jesus Christ. And so the symbol of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is the cross of Christ. Not only does it signify our salvation and Christ's glory in saving us from our sins, it also signifies our discipleship and remains forever the perfect symbol of following Him. And at the same time, the cross is also a sign of immense joy for us as Christians because of the eventual eternal superior vindication that was granted in the resurrection. Jesus looked for that at the end, even while he was on the cross. We look for it in the end. We look for the joy and the justification reaching its conclusion in our eternal hope and salvation. Such a large part of why this gospel invitation works is because only those that are given faith would ever accept such an invitation. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 9, 18 and following. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You know, it's always a great blessing to consider with unusual attention what God puts before us in his scriptures. You know, we're just going through Luke. And we come across this passage in the Word, and we're going to learn today that we're to be more confident as disciples, to be more confident and committed to actually proclaiming the identity of who Jesus Christ is to the world, that he's the Christ of God. The disciples would glory in who he is and what he would accomplish, and so in our passage today there are two very basic lessons for us, one in verses 18 to 20 that we're called to declare the identity of Jesus, and two in verses 21 to the end we're called to follow the life pattern of Jesus, or maybe it would be better to say we're called to follow the death pattern of Jesus Christ. Now we're in this subsection of Luke that began in Luke chapter 8 verse 22, and we've seen so many amazing things that Luke has presented to us. Jesus has been wielding absolute power over nature by calming the sea. Absolute power over the demons by casting them out. Absolute power over disease by healing the woman absolute power over death by raising from the dead. And then last week we saw the first apostolic mission and he commissioned his disciples and they went out and they were successful in proclaiming the gospel. Well, today we reached the highlight of this whole section with Peter's great confession in verse 920. Who do you say that I am? And he said, the Christ of God. That's a truly awesome statement, a great confession, but what does it mean? Jesus now will fill it out for us as we continue looking at Luke. And our first lesson to learn as disciples is that we're called to declare the identity of Jesus. So who do the crowds say that Jesus is? Verses 18 and 19. But who do you say that I am? Verse 20. That's the outline. Who do the crowds say that Jesus is? Who do your friends say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? And so we read right away, likely, you know, a whole lot has transpired as we're going along in Luke at this point. The chronology is not often evident to us, but the last thing we really read about was the feeding of the 5,000. But Luke skips over a whole bunch of ministry, uh, healings, and miracles, and discussions, and they're all recorded in Mark chapter 6 through 8, and you can read about them if you want to, and now we're here. And Jesus has taken his disciples about 25 miles north of Galilee into Gentile territory, into Caesarea Philippi. And during a time of prayer, and Luke emphasizes prayer a lot in his gospel, especially at key points in the ministry of Jesus, and this is a key point because Peter confesses that he is Christ of God. We saw it at his baptism, his prayer, uh, the selecting of the 12, and Jesus models prayer for us. Well, now he's going to talk to his disciples about who the multitudes, the populace, say he is. It's a leading question, and we're going to get the repeated answer that we've already heard from who the people were saying when, in the episode of Herod, back there in chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, the people think of Jesus as a great prophet, even an eschatological figure, that is, a figure who would come at the end times. Perhaps he's John the Baptist who's come back from the dead, perhaps He's Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, as Malachi prophesies, or maybe he's one of the other prophets of old who's come back. And Jesus was, you see, at the time, associated in some fashion with diverse ideas and hazily defined expectations of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. Now, of course, the people are partially correct. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was an eschatological figure. He's the messianic prophet who fulfills the role of Moses as we read in Deuteronomy 1815. He is the eschatological messianic son of man in Daniel chapter seven, which we'll look at later. But you see the crowds, the people, they only saw Jesus as a sign of the coming Messiah and the kingdom at best, but not the Messiah himself. Who actually brought the kingdom so Jesus asked his disciples well who do you say that I am in verse 20 and Jesus asked them their opinion so is he just another prophet even a great prophet even the greatest of prophets have they figured out anything better than the multitudes beyond what they think I mean Jesus has been asking these questions in some form all along the way And questions would often arise after his miracles and his teachings. Do they know better than the rest? Do we? Is Jesus just another religious man? A great prophet from God? A moral teacher? Have we learned much from the Bible about who he is, even from the Gospel of Luke? Do we know any better than the rest? The identity of Jesus. Where do you get your information on who Jesus is? Is it from Scripture, or is it only from your reasonings in your head and discussions with people that are ignorant? Peter, speaking for them all, he proclaims, well, you're the Christ of God. And we're reminded that that's what was proclaimed by the angels back in Luke chapter 2, and Simeon in Luke chapter 2, and the demons even pronounced it in chapter 4 we've been told so all along. But Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ which means he's the anointed one of David. And this is an open affirmation of Jesus' messianic identity and probably even his divinity in what Peter is saying. Jesus is not just another forerunner as the populace saw him but he's the Messiah himself. Now of course not many saw this and understood this at this point even Peter had a whole lot more to learn. But this very affirmation of being the Christ, you know, would get Jesus killed by those who didn't believe it to be true. And then, of course, the very fulfillment of being the Christ is that he would suffer and die for the redemption of the sin of his people. God's predetermined plan, it says in the book of Acts, is being fulfilled in his crucifixion. It's an amazing story. It's beyond our understandings of what is wise and what is glorious. Now, at this point in the storyline, the Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' statements about how Peter actually knew this and how he would be the rock, the foundation of the church. And so in Matthew 16, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, spiritual insight into the identity of Jesus comes from divine revelation. It will never be found by natural reason alone. Won't come to that conclusion. No one, not even today, can answer on their own the question correctly that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Even the faith to apprehend the identity of Jesus as the Messiah is a gift from God. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, No one can say to Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. He must reveal it to our minds and hearts. This is the doctrine of divine illumination. But nevertheless, the Messianic Confession, this is a crucial juncture in the disciples' spiritual growth. And surely they thought and hoped that he would be the Messiah. Yet their vision was still clouded by all their misguided assumptions of who he should be and God's purposes. And that's because God, the Holy Spirit, had not yet opened their minds to understand. But you know, the decisive moments moments of understanding would be given very soon, after Jesus was raised from the dead and at Pentecost. Then the rest is history after that. It's real history, it's in the book of Acts. You can read the history. You can read all about it and the church has been living it ever since. And we are called to declare the identity of Jesus, that he's the Christ of God. Yes, it's a simple application. Who do you say that Jesus is? And do you see him for who he is and far more than what the interested world around you sees him as? Realize that you have significantly more revelation of his identity because of scripture being complete. So take advantage of it. You have way more understanding in that sense than the disciples had at the time. And realize that significantly more history in the history of redemption has flowed out since his death and resurrection. So assuming you know him, we're to be confident disciples and to proclaim him as the Christ of God. He has come. He has been sent from the Father. He's the Son of God, fully God, fully man, the divine Messiah. So what does it mean that he's the Christ? So what? Well, Jesus is now going to fill out its meaning for us as the story continues. And the second lesson to be learned as disciples here is that we're called to follow the life pattern of Jesus. So here's a warning, you know, label, before you get into the next part of this scripture. It gets really intense now because he's going to talk about his cross and our cross. So I hope you're ready. So verses 21 to 22 is Jesus' cross. Verses 23 to 27 is the disciples cross. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Now, as readers of Luke, we know oh, we've heard this before. And Jesus of course is trying to prevent this premature revealing and confusion of his identity that he somehow came to bring national deliverance. But more importantly, and more simply, I mean, the cross and resurrection had to come first because he needed to complete the work before it's announced with such directness. That makes sense. They wouldn't see the greatness of it anyway, of who he is, until he accomplished the work he came to do. And so open proclamation would come later on after the work, after understanding. And again, read the book of Acts. It's the amazing power of the gospel itself to actually save and transform people. And so Jesus now explains Peter's messianic confession, what it means that he's the Christ. Being the Messiah of God means four things. There are four divine musts here, if you will. So in the original language, that's what that means here when he says that the Son of Man must And this must, uh, goes along with all four of the statements, he has to complete the plan. He has to fulfill God's, the Father's divine purpose for him. So he must suffer many things. He must be abused. He must go through an unjust trial. Jesus, secondly, must be rejected by the religious leaders, and we've already started seeing that in the gospel, according to Luke, the beginnings of that rejection. Third, Jesus must be killed. And in verse 23, we see how he must be killed. He must be killed by dying on a cross. And fourth, he must be raised on the third day. And notice how Jesus uses the title for himself, the Son of Man. Why? This comes from Daniel chapter 7, and it refers to the Messiah ruling in universal open glory. And the title's already been used many times in the gospel according to Luke, and it's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. He uses this title more than anything. So we should probably figure it out. So this title is that this title should be connected to suffering. I mean, he says the Son of Man must suffer, would be a noticeably stunning thing to say. I mean, you can turn your Bibles if you'd like to, but I'll just read it to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 say this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the agent of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There's no suffering in there. You see, it wouldn't appear that the Son of Man figure would suffer at all. But Jesus is making it very clear that the Messiah would have to do both, suffer and then reach glory because the earlier prophets already spoke about that, that these two are combined. And so, for example, Isaiah in chapter 53 writes this about the Messiah. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he himself poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's why he uses it. So that people would understand, so that you and me would understand how these all fit together and who he is. That he is the divine, the son of man who would come to die for our sins and then be raised to glory to see the inheritance of what he purchased. Well, verse 22 in our passage in Luke is the first clear passion prediction, and there are many more in this gospel account. The first clear passion prediction. And we are to love the passion of our Lord. Passion means suffering, his suffering story, and declare it along with his identity. He's truly fully God, he's fully man, and he was crucified and resurrected as God's Savior of mankind. And so then we read about the disciples' cross, and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now in the gospel according to Matthew and Mark, there's a little more to the story because Peter actually rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. Luke omits that and Luke takes us straight to the discipleship lesson that Jesus gives, which flows out of this passion prediction of his. In these verses, Jesus uses this passion prediction to teach us about true discipleship. His life and ministry, his death and resurrection, they model discipleship. If a person wishes to follow Jesus into glory, he or she must follow Jesus through suffering. There's no other path, by the way. The Apostle Paul would reemphasize this in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Jesus is speaking to all these would-be disciples, not just the close ones. And through Luke, this would include everybody who ever read the Gospel of Luke, everybody who ever listened to it. That includes us here today. It includes us. In verse 23, it says very simply, he begins with this word, if, if anyone would come after me, it's an if, assuming it's the case that we would want to follow him to be a disciple. And if this is true of you or anyone, it's really wonderful. But now, what this is going to involve is self denial, cross bearing daily, and imitation and obedience. These are the terms. Are you still interested? You think it's worth it? Self-denial is giving up your life for Jesus, living for him, not for yourself. And that's really the core requirement, and then Jesus fills it out with the next two items. In other words, to clarify what self-denial is, Jesus tells us that it means taking up your cross and following him. To bear your cross daily is an extremely intense image. It's the ultimate in self-denial. This is the willingness to undergo the same suffering, rejection, and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an image of submission, an image of humility before God and his will, that your life is not your own. He owns you. Your life is his. It also means showing to the world that if we follow Jesus, yes, we bear our cross daily, but showing the world that we're already dead, that we're dead to sin, that we're dead to our old life, that we're dead to selfishness, that we're dead and not even interested in the world's values anymore. And Luke emphasizes the daily nature of this meaning it's a part to be a part of our daily reflection and our decision-making and our living. And then finally, to follow him, to imitate him, his character, to obey his teaching, is to show that we actually have faith in him. And if you're a true follower, you know that we're not doing these things, bearing our cross or trying to obey and imitate him to somehow gain salvation. And as those of us who already know Christ, we're also not doing those things to try to get Him to love us more because we believe in the gospel of grace, not the gospel of works, even if we shroud them in spiritual language. And it flows out of faith, and you know how you tell the difference? Joy. That's the difference. Because if you're doing those things, thinking that somehow you're gonna earn your salvation, or as a Christian, you somehow think you're gonna make yourself a better Christian, those people aren't typically very joyful. They're usually a bunch of legalists. But those of us who believe the gospel in all of its glory of grace, you feel the joy in doing this. And we all likely agree With everything that's just been said and we read about in this passage, but the point for us to realize is that it's not just to agree in principle, but it's to actually live it out, to own it for ourselves. We must make daily decisions based on a discipleship commitment to Jesus. Is it worth trading your life? And that's where he goes next. Here's the wager. In verses 24 and 25, and Jesus goes on to describe the futility of serving ourselves anyway, you see, because it's not like you really have a choice. So there are two choices. One is to seek to save your own life. That's this life that you're living in this world. It's the opposite of self-denial, trying to control your life, trying to get the world's approval on your life, trying to gain everything in this world. The result is you'll lose your life at the last judgment. The real life. What could have been eternal life. And the glory of God. To lose one's life, this life, and this world for the sake of Christ, and the way you do that is by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by venturing all on him. Because it's a wager. You're going to put it all on Jesus. But you know, it doesn't end there. We give it all to him, and we focus on him. To give up your life for the sake of Jesus is self-denial, even if it costs your life and you're a martyr. But the result is that you'll save your life in the end, real life. And Jesus then asks, in verse 25, as if this is some kind of a business deal, which is the better deal? Now, assume you could gain the whole world, all its wealth, all its approval. A lot of people think they can. No one's ever really achieved it, but they keep trying. But assume you could gain the whole world with all of its wealth and all its approval and all of its glory and all of its power. But then somewhere along the way, you're required to forfeit your life. And you knew this in advance. I mean, what, an et- what, a, what a waste of your life to go after all that stuff when it's not going to benefit your soul in eternity. Do you see what a vast and foolish risk it is to live your life for yourself and the desires for things and for approval? You only have one life. I mean, what do you want to do with it? Where do you want to invest it? And so in verse 26, after talking about the terms in verse 23 and the wager in verses 24 and 25, Jesus presses his appeal for true followers. He wants more of those, you see. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So now he discusses the shame of disloyalty for those who are false disciples, because he had many of those too. These are people who claim to follow Jesus, but in the end, they give up their greatest loyalty. They give their greatest loyalty to the world. And you know, the longer you live as a Christian it becomes more obvious that what Jesus is talking about, false disciples, it's very true, very sad. We see that people, many of our friends, maybe even family members, they're not really true disciples. They never really were. It was a show. You see, there are those who claim to follow him, but they end up Not. They're fearful that discipleship in the end is going to cost them too much. Jesus told a parable about this earlier we looked at. It's going to cost them too much money. It's going to cost them opportunities that the world offers that they have to forego. It's going to cost them reputation. They're fearful that disciples are going to require that if they're a disciple of Jesus, that they're someday going to have to make a public confession and stand up for Jesus and lose something for doing it. A job, getting kicked out. Of your family? Being ostracized from your friend group, whatever it might be. They're afraid it's going to cost them something someday. And then it says, Jesus says very clearly, the little suffer at the final glory of the Son of Man when he comes in the glory of his Father and His angels. So when you think about Jesus' words so far, what do you think of his gospel invitation? Very inviting? But the terms are really good. I mean, they're fair terms, and the best wager is obvious, and the glory you gain is worth it all, and all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. I mean, this is how it works, you see, because his true disciples, they see all the inviting parts in between all those tough parts. That's what they see. They see the glory beyond the suffering for being a Christian. They see the pattern of Jesus and accept it in their devotion, that it's an honor and a privilege to suffer for Jesus. It's not something to be afraid of. You see, true disciples will see the eternal glory of Christ and the opportunity to share in it. Do you have eyes to see? Many of us do. It's obvious that the true disciples will share in the glory, and that's what the promise is next in verse 27. There's a great promise to all the disciples, including you and me, eventually. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. When it says that they will see, it's a word that means they'll experience the kingdom of God. The promise began with those disciples standing there that very day. Some of them, right then and there, that very day, Jesus promised they would enter into the experience before they were to die they wouldn't have to wait long. They've been waiting long. They've been waiting. Every time God seems to speak in the Old Testament, well, it's soon. But now Jesus came, and He came proclaiming the kingdom and declaring that it's here, that it's among you. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. Oh yeah, there's still a consummation to come. And specifically, these people He's talking to would be observing very, very shortly, a great chain of events that proclaim that the kingdom of God is here and they will experience it. Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension into glory, the Holy Spirit descending at Pentecost and then the expansion of the church and the launching of the mission to the nations and the power that the church has with the gospel. All of this is what is being referred to by Jesus as seeing the kingdom of God. It's a reference to the whole package, not to any single event. It's none other than the whole glorious progression of the kingdom that's in view. And you know what's next? The transfiguration in the storyline of Luke. That's why Luke goes there next. Because it anticipates all of those things. And Peter, James, and John are the only ones that get that particular privilege. But all disciples of Jesus, including us, we've entered into the joyful experience of the kingdom of God. We see it. We're a part of it. We perceive it by the Holy Spirit, and we live it now and forever when Jesus brings it in all of its glory. And as a result, we should be very confident disciples and committed to proclaiming the Christ of God We're called to follow his life pattern. We're called to follow his death pattern. You see, we can't be attached to the world's values, its behaviors, and its acceptance. And we have to admit that this is really hard. Anybody who tells you it's easy, maybe hasn't either lived long enough or lived full out for Jesus. But we live here, and we live in this world and this culture. And if that's not bad enough, we have our own fleshly desires waging war against our souls, Scripture says. That's a tough thing. But there's a solution and a help, and that is that we should be constantly reflecting on the passion of our Lord Christ. That's where he began this discussion of what it means to be a follower of His. He talks about His own rejection and suffering and the glory that would follow it. And so we should be constantly reflecting upon His words and and connecting them to discipleship. So, one way to do that that I will give you this morning as an idea is to constantly be learning more and understanding more about Jesus' cross. Now, some of you may know that Ash Wednesday is on Wednesday. So, in our tradition of evangelicalism we don't tend to really celebrate the Lenten season and that's okay but you know here's an opportunity to uh, take advantage of something that's already set out there in the calendar anyway and we live in a very religious area it's so easy to talk to people about religion because they all have a religious background it seems around here and you know people might even be saying things to you like oh what does your church do for Lent or what are you doing I have an idea so one of the things that I've done for a long time not every year but but I'm going to do it again this year is that uh, I take advantage of the Lenten season to learn more about the cross of Jesus Christ you see that's a way you can apply this text in your life today and so you got 50 days right so, and of course we'll celebrate Holy Week, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. That's much more part of our tradition and we will celebrate Pentecost because it's part of the cycle and it's my favorite day. So, but well, one of the things I do is I pick a book, a new book that will help me understand the cross of Jesus Christ better. So there are many of them out there. In fact, if you just Google it, you can probably find, you know, a dozen good ones that are just published this year. They're always being published. but. Here's one that I've really enjoyed over the years by John Stott called The Cross of Christ. It's probably the modern classic on the, on the cross of Jesus. So mine's a pretty worn copy. So that's a pretty thick one. So if you're not up for thick, don't read this one. Um, <laughs> then uh, another really, really good one that I found a while ago was Martin Lloyd-Jones' The Cross. He's even easier to read because he writes like he preaches. So uh, very simple book, very interesting book. Um, So I would recommend this one as well. And then if that's still too thick for you, uh, here's a really thin one. So this uh, came out a number of years ago, just simply called The Passion of Jesus Christ, written by John Piper. And it's really just 50 devotionals. I mean, they're that long, they're very short, okay about the cross, and there are many others. i got some in the mail today. Pastors always get those things. So we don't like those kinds of things, too much stuff. So, but, uh, but there are so many opportunities to do that. So then you see, if you commit yourself to, oh, I'm gonna read a book like this, and then one of your friends comes along or somebody you meet and says, well, what are you doing for Lent? And you say things like, well, you know, in our church, in our tradition, you know, we don't really celebrate as much, perhaps, as you do in your tradition, but you know what I've been doing this year? I've been reading a book because I really want to understand what Jesus did on the cross. Can I tell you what I'm learning? And don't let them answer the question. Just start telling them what you've been learning. That's how it works. And so that's a great way to do it. Because then you yourself will come to a deeper appreciation of the cross. Because that's the centrality of our faith. And then it makes you much more prepared. And it's just going to come out of you to tell people about the identity of who Jesus is and what He really did on that cross. So you don't have to do it, but that's just one idea. So here are two famous summary statements from the Apostle Paul and Galatians to put everything together for us this morning. Discipleship and Jesus' cross, right? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what does it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus? The answer is huge. It's going to take your whole life to figure it out. In fact, it's all of the New Testament with all of its examples and all of its admonitions and all of its encouragements. And so by way of summary, I think this is a very helpful perspective in putting this all together by a scholar and pastor named Leon Morris. So let me just read you what he says about the section in Luke. It says, Jesus brings out the truth that he's looking for the utmost in self-denial by saying that the disciple must take up his cross. We minimize the force of this with sayings like, well, we all have a cross to bear. Jesus was not talking about minor afflictions, discomforts. Jesus was speaking about a death to a whole way of life. He was talking about the utmost in self-sacrifice, a very death to selfishness and all forms of self-seeking. Jesus is talking about a discipleship that is a whole way of life. Taking up a cross is not something that can be done once and for all and gotten out of the way. The cross is the church's symbol of salvation and of discipleship. Jesus, just, just as a Messiah, without suffering would be no real messiah, he wouldn't be a savior, right? A savior without suffering is not really a savior. Well, a disciple without suffering is not a real disciple. So maybe today could be a day of your real salvation, true salvation. I mean, maybe up until this point, you've just been a cultural Christian. Your family goes to church, so you go to church. Your parents believe X, you believe it, right? You can figure out how people behave, how they talk, how they pray, and just imitate it all. And so you're really just a cultural Christian because you haven't committed your own life. Maybe you've been confused on the terms before because somebody told you something different about following Jesus. That when you actually look at what Jesus said, they don't match. Well, Jesus has the right to set the terms, to be his follower, and we read about them this morning. So if that's you today, you've just been a cultural Christian, I would encourage you to escape, to venture your whole life by faith in Jesus that he died on that cross as the innocent one for you, the one who's full of guilt and sin. And all that's required is to simply confess your sin to God and to put all your faith in that cross and to stop thinking that you can save yourself and to just glory in the gospel. Maybe there are some of us here today that we've been living for ourselves too much, trying to glorify ourselves in this world or in front of other people, and we need to repent and recommit our lives. Or maybe... For most of us probably in this room, it's just simply we need a boost of encouragement. That Jesus suffered for us, and so it makes suffering in this life worth it all. Because we're going to be with Him in glory someday. And that's why we're here this morning. See, we are weak people, and we need each other for encouragement to stay strong. And so we have to encourage one another as we're suffering. For the glory of Christ and not, not simply encourage people on how they can avoid more suffering or just sympathize with people. We need to learn to glory in suffering, to deny ourselves and not be afraid. And the way that we do that is by talking about the cross with each other, the cross of Jesus. And to talk to yourself about that cross, to talk to other Christians about that cross, a lot. Over. And over again, and in the midst of the suffering. Because you see, to a Christian, and we all know this, I mean, one of the greatest encouragements in the midst of our suffering is to hear about Jesus' suffering. It doesn't make any sense to the world what a bunch of fools you Christians are, you see. But to us, we know. We've experienced it. We've encouraged other people, and we've been encouraged by them when they talk to us about. Jesus, in the midst of our pain. So we're to be confident and filled with joy in walking this path of discipleship. It's a path we began a long time ago for many of us, for some of us, maybe very recent, but it's a path we began when we put our faith in Jesus and his cross, and we've been traveling that path since. And my encouragement for us this morning is to continue down the path of discipleship, to be confident and to proclaim Jesus is Lord. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as our Lord, as our Savior, for calling us into discipleship as a whole way of life and setting before us the perfect example, of course. Lord God, we thank you for true conversions that you would work even in our midst today. We thank you in advance for pointing out things in our lives by the work of your spirits and your word where we need to recommit ourselves to the path of self-denial. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, for the encouragement that we all gain from it as your followers, because we know that you went to that cross for us and that we're yours forever in glory that's coming. And we pray this morning then above all that you would put our focus more firmly on yourself, Lord Jesus, on your cross and on your glory and we pray these things for your work and your sake in us your church here at calvary amen